Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 23, Episode 3. Coming up on the show, we've got the Dream Hole and the Ant People, a thousand cloned grandmas, and Anthony Peake joins us to discuss his new book, The Hidden Universe. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. It's been so long since we've discussed our encounters with the ant people, so I thought I should bring them back for this episode. Ant people! (laughs) Is it that kind of story? Uh, No, it's not ant people. They may be on Earth, but we will be describing some more surreal experiences that people have had in relation to UFO abductions and uh, interactions with non-human intelligences. And this is something which is going to be coming up in our interview with Anthony Peake. Well, a lot comes up in our interview with Anthony Peake. Anthony's the kind of guy where you sit down and you... You read his book and you think very hard about the questions you're going to ask him. You prepare very carefully about where you want the interview to go. And then all that goes out the window <laughs> because Anthony <laughs> Anthony just comes on and he just goes. And, and then he just keeps going and he just keeps going and going and going and going. And it was funny because we, we spoke to him late at night and I, I have this feeling every time I speak to Anthony because of the different time zones, he's just waking up in the morning and he's... <laughs> We're coming down. He's revving to go. Like he's always <laughs> on 11, ready to go. And I have that feeling when my brain's just going, well, shutting down for the day. Particularly with Anthony's topics, because the things that he describes and talks about really are the limits, I think, of um, basically comprehension sometimes. And I'm not meaning that in a bad way. I think his theories are truly fascinating and I'm really looking forward to talking with him. And then we're also going to address some of those topics that he raises in the plus extension as well. Because this world that we live in, this reality that we exist in, it really is far more unusual and bizarre than we can ever possibly comprehend. And I think Anthony comes close to giving us a glimpse of what could lie beyond at least the reality that we understand. I think I point out very early in this interview coming up that this new book, The Hidden Universe, An Investigation into Non-Human Intelligences, is uh, the fourth in a series of his investigations into the nature of reality. So he really does dig deeper into his philosophy of what's behind everything. And you'll find out he really likes to go into the science as well. And I feel like... This fourth book, well, each book in the series goes even deeper. Mm. And now we're at a place where we're discussing these non-human intelligences, which is the most interesting part of what we talk about on the show, I think. I think so. When you're talking about the idea of another conscious entity, the other that isn't human, I mean, it really does make you wonder what's going on. Well, it does. And beyond that, it's terrifying as well. Because if an intruder breaks into your home, I mean a human, if a human breaks into your home in the middle of the night, there are things that you can do, things that you can respond to. And even if it's never happened to you before, you know inherently what to do about it. Whereas with these experiences that people have, the bedroom invaders, like what John Keel was talking about decades ago, you know, what Charles Fort has described, you know, these great Fortians, these great researchers, they have described these ongoing interactions with non-human intelligences that seem to want to have something to do with us and we can't defend against them. So when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and find a grey standing next to your bed... It's beyond terrifying. Or a thousand cloned grandmas. Or a thousand cloned grandmas, which actually does happen in a story I have. It makes you go, (laughs) what the hell do I do? And because humans don't like to know, we don't like to know what to do or how to deal with the unknown. We want answers and they never seem to come. Well, Anthony feels like he has some answers. He's getting closer to something. I think so. And I I hope you enjoy the interview. This is Anthony Peake. You can find him at uh, anthonypeake.com. Of course, we'll link to all his books in the show notes. This is on the hidden universe and investigation into non-human intelligences. We hope you enjoy the interview.
Well, welcoming back to the show, Anthony Peake. He's the author of The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligence. Welcome back to the show, Anthony. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic to be back with you guys. You know, it's, it's really wonderful to uh, just have the opportunity to chew the cud. We always love having you on because, you know, we end up going into these topics in a deep way. And we've seen that this is uh, an ongoing inquiry you have into the universe with these books for Watkins Publishing. And it, it seems as though this new one is the next step in that inquiry into the nature of the universe. So why was uh, non-human intelligences the next logical step to take? It just seemed to be it. it. Again, one of the things about my writing is that I find I get guided into where I'm going to go next. Uh, you know, I have the concept of the daemon and the Adelon and the idea that we have this kind of guiding higher self, which has lived our life before. And I just wait for the, the demonic to come in to guide me. And it normally happens in the most bizarre of circumstances, the most synchronistic of circumstances. I'll just come across a paper or somebody will mention something to me, and that will stimulate a whole area of inquiry. But particularly with non-human intelligences, it's something because I've been working closely with people who uh, have encountered entities in different different circumstances. Um, for instance, people I work with who um, uh, use dimethyltryptamine, both for research purposes and illegally for recreational purposes, or legally if they go down to Latin America and go on these ayahuasca retreats and things. And they, they have been telling me for years that the entities they apprehend in the altered states of consciousness have their own motivations. And I think it was something that was said to me um, around about 18 months ago by um, a young researcher um, who's involved in, in legal DMT research. And he said, you know, these entities, they, they know you, they recognize you. When you, you, you return again, they know you. And I will give an anecdote a little bit later that he's, he gave me a few weeks, um, a couple of months ago, that it's just simply astounding, you know, and if, can I, can I explain it now then just very quickly? Yeah, jump in. Why not? Okay. Okay. Um, it's uh, a guy called um, Dr. Carl Smith, and he's a member of a very, very interesting research group at Imperial College at London University. Now, this group um, have been set up by a multimillionaire guy called Anton Bilton. And Bilton has had a series of experiences throughout his life. Um, and he, he wants to explore these areas in greater detail. So he's financing this legal research into um, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and how it affects the brain or how it affects consciousness and takes you into altered states of consciousness. So what they're doing under controlled conditions, they're taking DMT intravenously, that is via, via veins in the body, in mm -hmm. the arm. And the, the, the volunteers are then going into what's called the DMT zone, the DMT world, this alternate reality you go into during DMT states. And they're then reporting back under control conditions uh, and under laboratory conditions while their brains are being monitored um, as to what they what they, they feel and what they perceive. And Carl was telling me, we, we, Carl and I have done a couple of events together and we'll again touch upon these events later if we get the opportunity. But Carl was explaining to me that um, a few months ago, the first time he went into the DMT zone, he found himself out of his body. And if you take DMT, you just find yourself somewhere else that seems more real than this, this reality. It's the reality behind this reality. And he said that when he was there, this, this entity, this, this kind of being, non-human being, came over to him and literally eyeballed him. And I think even poked him and said, 
you should not be doing it this way. This is not the way you do it. Do not do it. So he then finds himself back in the laboratory, comes to it. He said, that was a really bizarre experience. There's some entity telling me we shouldn't be doing this. Two weeks later, he's back in the laboratory, takes the DMT, goes back and he's in the same place and the same entity comes over and he actually <laughs> says, I told you last time, don't do this. Don't do it. Don't do it again. Now, this to me was astounding. This was somehow as if these entities are waiting for them to to the the psychonauts to arrive mm. to communicate with them so to me this means that there is there is an independence to them and this was what drove the book the idea well we have lots of reports of these things and one of the things that drives me mad about books of the kind of ilk I write is they're what I call gee whiz books. They're just full of, I had an experience with an alien. I had an out of the body experience. I had a near death experience. And you just get experience after experience after experience, but nobody, nobody ever attempts to explain. Nobody tries to put them in a structure, in a scientific model. And I have a very scientific, very skeptical, very rational mind. So to me, I want explanations. I want to know, well, if these entities are there, what are they? Where are they? How do they exist within science? And this is this was the, the aim of the book. Anthony, I'm so pleased that you actually raised that particular story and the idea that these beings exist on another plane, but they are independently intelligent. And the reason why I want to get into that is because uh, later on in your book, and this is something that you've described in other books as well, is the concept of consciousness creating reality, not reality creating consciousness. So if consciousness is creating reality... That experience that he had in that particular circumstance, do you think that's something that he has created in his mind or do you think he actually has interacted with a real entity that is somewhere else in a reality that we don't understand? Yeah, gee, it was an excellent question. And I did an event in London last night and somebody asked a very, very similar question to this. I think that it's, it's almost um, like a Russian doll here or bootstraps theory. It's as if the entities themselves use our own consciousness to bring themselves into existence. I know that sounds bizarre and it sounds strange, but it seems like it's almost like a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, you know, I have sections on tulpas and, and, and thought forms that are created by the act of consciousness, by the act of a group of people getting together and choosing to create something. Again, last night on my talk, somebody cited an example of a profoundly haunted house that they lived in that had actually been a home for disturbed children many years before. And the poltergeist activity was, was absolutely phenomenal within the house. Now, if you hypothesize my the way I see these things, I would argue that those thought forms, the entities have been created by the children themselves and their hopes and their fears and their anticipations, and had actually become come into this world using that fear you know, it's the idea of almost they're like parasites. They can they can feed and come into existence because we think about them. But it doesn't mean that because we, we, we think about them and we create them within our own minds that they don't have independent existence of us. They do. But if consciousness is prime, in other words, you know, you, ta you, you take modern, modern science and modern science of the very effective and very successful materialist reductionist model of science, which is you take something apart in order to understand it. We know breaks apart when you get down to quantum physics level. We know that at the, the smallest sizes and at the largest sizes, you know, from cosmology to quantum physics, the whole thing breaks down. And when it breaks down, they start, they start to come to the conclusions that 
the reality creates consciousness, that consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of electricity and chemicals within the brain. It's the other way around. It's that the, the consciousness itself brings about external reality, consensual reality. And we know this from quantum physics because we know something called the collapsing of the wave function. It's one thing to talk about subatomic particles and our observation of them and how it's affected by our consciousness. But I mean, you, we've got a book here about non-human intelligences. To make a leap from subatomic particles to non-human intelligences is a big one. Not really. The reason being that everything is created out of subatomic particles. Every single thing in the observed universe is created out of subatomic particles. It is, it is created by electrons um, and quarks, basically. And that's everything. So any aliens that we may encounter, any non-human intelligences we encounter, they are all created from these ephemeral things that leap in and out of existence. And the reason that there is the mystery here is because these entities are made of the same things. And they can manipulate this bizarre quantum world to, to actually become part of this reality. And I think finishing off with that statement, it means that we almost collapse the wave function or we, they make sure that we do collapse the wave function of them, of them to bring them into existence within this part of reality. Anthony, I'm just trying to get my, my head around it because it is a, a complex... I mean, I know you're saying that it's simple, but it's complex at the oh, same time. Oh, totally. <laughs> How is it then that our consciousness is creating this reality, but they seem to be able... We don't seem to be able to control it, but they can. Why is it that they seem to be able to control how they appear? It could be that they, they know how to manipulate the simulation better. Because, as you know, in my previous books, I argue the evidence that we're existing in a, a, a two-dimensional simulation, simulated as a three-dimensional uh, reality, and that they seem to be able to play with the data better than we can. They seem to be able to come from wherever they are within the simulation into this part of the simulation and go back again. Um, because you go back right through history and you'll find the, the, the others, for want of a better term, seem to just appear from nowhere and disappear into nowhere again. They disappear into caves. They disappear into places underground. Shamans encounter them in shamanic traveling. It seems that they can manipulate the reality around us. Now, of course, the argument is, are they one single group or are they a number of groups? And I think that the, the answer is that there's probably a, a number of these beings, all with different motivations, all with different approaches. A really fundamental question is, you know, going back to what Aaron asked earlier, do these entities have um, an independent existence outside of uh, human consciousness? Because, you know, if we're talking about tulpas, we're talking about forms created by human thought. And there's certainly a relationship between these non-human intelligences and human consciousness. How are we to explain this relationship? Do they exist on their own or are they confabulations? Or do they need us? Um, there, well, there's, there's two arguments here and I'm, I'm not quite sure um, where my research is going to take me on this because remember, I'm as much as you guys. I'm I'm wandering around in a dark, a, a blackened out room looking for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> um, and sometimes I feel that that is the case because the further you get in, the more the, the, the mystery gets greater. But I think the solution may be, and this is my my own interpretation of this, is that you know the very you may have come across the very famous um, monologue 
by Bill Hicks, the American comedian, yeah. when he turned around and he says, uh, breaking news, young man on acid in somewhere in, you know, I don't know, somewhere in Texas or something, um, suddenly realizes that physical matter is only energy slowed down and we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Now over to Bill for the weather. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in this, in this model, he speaks very interesting truths here. Because the idea is that most people, when they take certain substances, specifically, it seems, 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, a particular hallucinogenic substance that is actually excreted by the Sonoran toad in, 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 in the southern states of the United States and in northern Mexico. It's a very, very powerful hallucinogenic substance. And people who take this go into a place where they realize that indeed we are one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively and that we are all one. There is a oneness. But of course, we know that mystics have written about this for centuries. It's called the oceanic experience. It's the idea that when you move out of this ego-bound body that we are, because in order to function within this simulation, we have to have a sense of self. We have to have a self-sense self of embodiment. And recent research has shown when people take hallucinogenic substances, in particular case, the research that's recently been done on psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms, they, they had people take psilocybin and then they did MRI or fMRI scans of their brains. And amazingly enough, they discovered that the psilocybin actually shuts down parts of the brain, shuts down parts of brain activity. That's right. So in other words, it switches the brain off in order for the brain to stop being an attenuator, something that takes information out of the information field. So is it possible that we are part of a greater uber consciousness, something I call the uber daemon, uh, which is something I'm working on at the moment for my next book? And the idea is that we, we, we are part of a greater consciousness field, and these entities are also part of the same consciousness field. So therefore, to say that we create them is quite true. We create them out of consciousness material, consciousness flux, whatever, the zero point field, the Akashic field, the Akashic record, whatever we want to call it. But these creatures manifest themselves using this way of becoming solid, but they're still part of us. We are like an ocean. There's the ocean underneath us. And each individual is an ocean wave that comes out above the ocean for a short period of time and that goes back into the ocean. And the entities are parts of that wave. So we're kind of creating things that are independent of us because we create their independence and they then gain their independence. Uh, for instance, in the book, you know, I discuss the, the, the issue of uh, Alexander um, Neil, the, uh, the Belgian-French explorer who created a tulpa in the 1920s when she was living in Tibet, and she created a thought form, which was a little monk. And this little monk then became independent of her and then started to, as soon as it became independent of her, it started to change. It started to get more evil, more negative. And it was as if it was pulling itself away from her and then feeding off either her fear or the fear of the people around her. Because Paul Eno, who's an American researcher in this matter, actually calls many of these entities um, parasites. Yes, that's right. And he believes that they feed off fear or negative energy. And therefore, that's why they, they come across terrifyingly, because they want to engender in the human subjects the food and the sustenance they need, which is fear. We love the Alexander David Neal story, and it's often repeated whenever we're talking about 
thought forms. But speaking of, you know, gee whiz moments in your books, because there's there's so many, uh, I'd love you to share uh, Murray's experience, your friend Brian Murray. I mean, this was just bizarre. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally unbelievable. And I know this happened because... Braham, there's a background story. Braham, just to let people know, Braham Murray, the late and great Braham Murray, because he actually died last year, broke my heart when he died, um, in that, you know, I met him about three years ago. And, you know, you meet certain people and you click straight away. Braham and I met up and we used to regularly meet in a lovely Greek restaurant in, in North London. And he was explaining why he was attracted to my work because he'd read my work before we were put in contact. And he was particularly interested in a lot of the concepts I put forward. But one of the things he was saying to me, he said, you won't believe that he said, I know that there is more to this than meets the eye. There's more to this reality. It's really weird. You'll love this by how synchronicities happen here. Um, I I told the story I'm about to tell now when I did the book launch at Watkins Bookshop in central London two weeks ago. And the events that we're about to describe took place in December, in early December 1969, okay? Exactly 50 years to the day, or as damn near to the day as possible, to when I was doing my talk in, in London. And in, the, in his section in Worst It Can Be a Disaster, the preamble to this story is that he was asked to meet up with a guy called Armand Hernigstadt, who was flying in from Denmark. He was um, a a Danish lord, a Danish aristocrat. And one of his associates said, Brahim, can you go into London, go out to Heathrow Airport and meet with Armand Hernigstadt, pick him up and, and, and entertain him for a few days. That day, Brahim took himself off into London and stumbled across a esoteric bookshop in central London where he bought a book by Young uh, on, on, on thought forms yeah. and models and things. That bookshop was the bookshop I did the book launch in. Oh, okay, now, yeah. isn't that just so freaky? It's untrue. Yeah, that is weird. And I'm sitting there in the bookshop going, and Braham died. And I thought, this is Braham somehow showing his presence in some way. I don't know. So anyway, he then picks up the book and he's interested in it and he makes himself out out to Heathrow, picks up Armand Honigstadt and brings him back. So the two of them get back to Braham's apartment and they get talking about egregores and archetypes because Braham was interested in the theories of, of, of Carl Gustav Jung. And they're talking particularly about the, the way these egregores can be Nazism, they can be nasty and dangerous because they're the collective thought forms of a group of people when they're together, which again, I touch on in the book, a group of people get together, they can create a thought form, an egregore, but it can be societal as well, like crowds. When a huge crowd gets together, there seems to be a manifestation that's greater than the individual parts. Yes. And they're talking about this. And they said, well, Hitler and Nazism. And they then started talking and said, and Graham said, like, you could take, you know, Perrault's version of the grim version of Beauty and the Beast, you know, Cupid and Psyche, the idea of ugliness and beauty together and the dynamic. And Arnold Horningstadt, they're sitting there drinking whiskey and Horningstadt just turns around to me, he said, the beast exists. And Graham said, what do you mean? And he said, look over there. And it still sends shivers up my spine when Braham explained it to me. He said, I turned round and I looked and there was an empty chair in front of us. And he said, suddenly the chair was, something came into focus and there was this creature 
sitting on the, the on the chair and he said it was constantly metamorphizing between an ancient woman and a Medusa-like creature with snakes for her. Then it became a wizened old man and then it leered at him. And then he said it fizzed and then it faded away into, into nothingness. And he said, I looked at Armand and I said, did you create that? And he said, I brought it into existence. That's oh, bizarre. Now, Braham said to me, he said, I'm a rational person. I know what happened. I was not hallucinating. He had not hypnotized me to see that. Now, in the book, I make the point here that there are two separate hallucinations going on there. Because remember, Braham described the empty seat. Yes. But something then caused an hallucination in him to actually obscure the back of the seat in order to accommodate another hallucination, which was in front and blocking the seat. So the seat was the seat surface was excluded and this entity was brought into reality. And again, as Brian said to me, he said, this wasn't like a cartoon creature. This was a real creature that had malevolence about it. It had its own independent existence. I loved when you went into the, the history of John Dee on your chapter on the occult, and eventually we went through John Dee's interactions with non-human entities and wind up with the great beast, Alistair Crowley. And, you know, just on that story of, of your friend Braham, Crowley had some interesting ideas of these non-human entities in terms of their reality status. He seemed to say that they were you know, obviously products of the mind, but in the book you state that this doesn't necessarily mean that they're not objectively real. Can you kind of expand on on that thought and, you know, what that means exactly? Uh, yeah, because again, the, the whole John D. Uh, Edward Kelly incidents are, are really quite fascinating because it, it he was an interesting character john d he 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 was around um, the, the 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 later period of elizabeth I's reign and he seemed to have been a secret agent he spent a lot of time over in the netherlands he seemed to be some kind of spy he was almost the the archetypal james bond of the time and he 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 did some very interesting things and he was quite fascinated by drawing up entities from elsewhere. Now, he was particularly interested in the ancient book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about entities coming down from elsewhere. Now, these entities manifested themselves on Mount Hermon in, in Lebanon. And they came down and there was a group of them and the reason it's been taken out of the Bible is because of what happened next. Because these entities that came down to earth procreated with human women because they saw human women and saw human women and thought, "Woo, they're sexy. I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> and they created hybrid human beings, which are referenced in the Bible as, do you remember there's a term there were giants in those times? Yes, of course. Yeah. And these are those entities. Now, in biblical belief systems, um, Enoch was the grandfather of Noah. Now, the book of Enoch, it's hair-raising. I've been reading it recently, and it really is hair-raising. It's like pure science fiction. You would not believe. These entities, they teach women how to work whole on their, on their eyes to make themselves look more attractive. They, they teach science. They teach how to grow grain. It is clearly some kind of trans-dimensional creatures that are actually coming through 
and seeding and in seeding women literally, but also informing. Now, all all legends like this have an element of truth. People are trying to explain in their own limited way things that they were experiencing. Now, the term for these creatures is the watchers. Okay. Yes. Now that again is again freaky term, but the word watcher. In Latin, in, in Greek, is egregorius. Ah. Oh. Egregors. Right. So again, we have a direct link with my concept of the egregor with the Book of Enoch. Okay. So now carrying forward to the, the 15, 1570s, 1580s, you get Don John D, and he'd come across a book called The Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelathan the Mage. Okay. And he was fascinated by the contents of this because in this book, it describes how by using numbers and codes and mathematical structures, you can draw out of the ether alien entities. So he then started working with a well-known scryer. Well, he wasn't that well-known. He was a man of mystery called Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly was somebody that was known. He was a scryer. He could actually look into crystal balls or he could look into things and he could draw things out and bring them into three-dimensional existence. It was as if somebody who, when we are going to go into the DMT state, he was able to do that and then create these entities in, in consensual reality. He could project out the entities in his mind into three-dimensional reality. And over a period of weeks, they actually manifested a number of these beings. And these beings spoke to them and discussed things with them. Now, of course, he could have been exaggerating, but a lot of people said, no, he wasn't. There was a technique he was using here that we've lost. Now, rolling forward to uh, the work of Aleister Crowley. Now, Crowley, the news of the world in the 1920s considered him to be the most evil man in the world. And he was an extremely weird character. He'd, he'd grown up in this fundamentalist Christian group, uh, the Plymouth Brethren, um, but he'd broken away from that when he was at Cambridge or Oxford, I can remember which two. And he became very interested in esoteric writings. And he set himself up as uh, an esotericist um, and uh, a man looking into magic. And of course, he called it magic with CK at the end to actually differentiate from stage magic. And he, he argued that he, using the Enochian magic, which it now became known from the Book of Enoch, it's called Enochian magic. And by using Enochian magic, he himself was able to reproduce a lot of the things that John Dee and Edward Kelly did, including manifesting egregorial creatures. One of the egregorial creatures that he manifested intrigues me incredibly. It's a creature he called Lamb. Now, if you go onto the web, and if anybody's listening to this, just go onto the web and put in Elisa Crowley, L-A-M, Lamb. This, this entity is, it's a grey. There is no question it is an alien grey. And I put it a similarity. If you look at the way Lamb looks, the only thing is his eyes aren't big enough. Yeah, the eyes aren't there. I mean, the head's there. But, uh, but also the pointed chin. Yeah, it's the eyes that are the problem. And it's one of the issues I, I, I readily agree that that is the issue. The eyes are the right shape, but they're not large enough. And now it could be this was a slightly different variation of the entity because, of course, we had another entity called AWAS that also seemed to be, I would argue, that was Crowley's own daemon. And if you know my original writings on the daemon and the Adelon, I argue we all have 
this own our own game player within this game and our game player I call the Damon. And I think what had happened with Crowley when he manifested Awas, he was manifesting his own Damon within this reality. But this this imagery that that he has of Lamb is something that intrigues me because we've almost gone backwards here in terms of my my discussion here, because I argue that that image of Lamb, the image that you get on the book of Whitley Strieber's book, you look at the cover of his book, Communion. Now, people have argued, haven't they? The book, Communion, and the cover of the book, Communion, was the thing that seeded this whole grey idea. And that it became, it became an image that people started to reproduce. Bollocks, if I can use the term. Yeah. I've been doing research, and I found that that image goes right back to over 10,000 years ago. The same entity... Now, the same entities looking exactly the same with the same shaped head, the same shaped eyes are found in ancient cave paintings. Of course, you see them in Australia. Yes, of course you do. It's the, in Australia, the, the term is, oh, what are they called? The, uh, the Irantania, the Irantania and the Arunka, the Arunka from Dreamtime. Now, again, with the, the traditions of um, the, the native peoples of Australia, the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, you start looking at what they do and how they do it. You, you, the, for instance, they have, they have myths of um, these creatures dismembering people, dismembering shamans. When you do shamanic, tra- shamanic traveling and shamanic training, you get dismembered. These creatures dismember people. Not only that, they actually place tiny stones inside the bodies of <laughs> yeah. trainee shamans. This Implants. is, this is a, a, yeah. And it's a tap. It's a trope that you have in alien abductions these days, isn't it? The idea of putting a little tracker inside somebody, but this has been known since, since, since the dream time. Now on top of this, and this is most curious is why trainee shamans and why it is there's this thing with darkness why it is that they will go into caves, they train in caves. In fact, there is a tribe in um, Colombia um, and they train their young children. And what they do with their young children, the trainee shamans within this group, they actually go and they, they're put away for the first eight years of their life in a cave. And the reason is, I think it's to do with training the pineal gland to synthesize from melatonin what I, what my, my and my associates called metatonin, that is endogenous DMT. And I believe when they're in the darkness states for long, long time, they can endogenously, that is naturally generate dimethyltryptamine in their pineal gland, which means they are in a position where they can automatically enter altered states of consciousness. Whereas the rest of us have to either ingest or inject DMT. These individuals can switch it on and off. And that's how shamans do their shamanic traveling. To make it simple and actually kind of put it into a popular culture reference, Anthony, maybe you can give us some idea. Is it almost like The Matrix where Mr. Smith, who is on the outside, essentially gets into the simulation and gets out of control? Is it that what happens? I mean, something like this comes in and then it becomes out of control? Spot on. Absolutely spot on. You've hit the nail on the head. I, I As you know, I'm fascinated by movies. I'm fa- fascinated by the whole zeitgeist, weltgeist thing of movies that seem to pick up on these sublimated ideas. And there's so many movies that deal with this. And The Matrix, considering it was, what, 1999, is incredibly prescient and powerful in terms of a lot of these imagery. And I think Agent Smith is the classic example 
of of how these these entities, these almost digital entities, can can actually come into reality. And you know, towards the end of the book, I have a whole section on um, DNA and how DNA contains information and how DNA can information process. I think this is DNA playing with us in some some subtle way. But going back to Crowley, Crowley came up with the same ideas I have. And he had the same problems of trying to rationalize how it is that you can create something supposedly out of your own subconscious, but then becomes independent of you. And, you know, the term egregore, you know, I'm trying to term the term, take the term egregore and egregorial into a precise term. And I'm using that precise term because the egregorials are these kind of mind-created beings that have independence. Now, for instance, when people lucid dream and when they have out-of-body experiences, when people have near-death experiences, again, they encounter these creatures. You know, it's Terence McKenna, the machine elves. But they seem to coat themselves in, 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 in cultural norms, they fulfill our expectations of what they ex- what we expect them to be. So, for instance, when we have the development of the grey, yes, to a certain extent, greys that have been seen after communion came out fulfill a certain imagery. And this is because it's become part of our collective subconscious. But it's like Jungian ideal types. The Jungian forms, the platonic forms that exist out there are, in, are a sort of a feedback loop between what we perceive and what reality really is. And again, um, I did an event last year uh, at the Dracolow Tunnels in, 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 um, near Birmingham in the UK where we recreated Plato's cave to get across the idea of why did Plato have the ideas he did and Plato and a lot of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers hit the nail on the head. They sussed this 3,000 years ago, two and a half thousand years ago. The area I'm struggling to try and understand, Plato and Epicrates and, and various other Greek philosophers had already sussed it. There is this reality behind this reality. There's a reality behind this reality that is more real than this one. It's what Plato called the Platonic realm. It's the place of the Platonic forms. Everything here is a programmed representation of something that is more real and more pure the other side. So everything we perceive from a computer screen to the Yeti blue that's sitting in front of me, there is a platonic form of the Yeti blue that exists in the platonic realm that is the, is the essence of every Yeti blue that's ever made. Because how we make our reality, use Yeti blue as an example. The Yeti blue itself Originally, it's a, it's a very sophisticated microphone, but it was in the mind of its inventor initially. It was created as a thought form, and the, the inventor then went and did drawings of it and worked with designers and worked with electrical engineers to then bring this idea into a physical presence, and they used to make it, you know, metal and plastic and, and varied silicon and various other things which they took from another form and brought it into existence. But that Yeti blue, when it comes down to it, is still made up of quarks, electrons, protons, and neutrons, which are subatomic particles, which are point particles, which have very little mass, 
and in the final analysis are actually a part of this greater wave function. So everything we perceive in this reality, we think is real, we think is solid. And the only reason we think it's solid is we think we touch it. I can put my hand out now and I can touch the Yeti blue, or I think I touch it, but I don't touch it at all. What happens is my hand reacts with the surface of the, the Yeti blue and my hand hovers above it because of electrostatic repulsion. The ends of each of the atoms within the Yeti blue, the external where all the electrons are whizzing around, repulses me because my, 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 my finger is, is, is one charge and it's another charge and they, they repulse. We never touch anything. We never directly interface with anything in external reality. The only thing we interface with are thoughts. We are now exchanging thoughts. We are creating an egregore now. You guys are in Australia. I'm in West Sussex in England. But by the wonders of modern technology, we are creating something greater than the three of us by this discussion. And that's an egregore in exactly the same way. We are bringing these ideas into reality, if that makes sense. Turn your dreams into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace has the tool for you. And they've got those beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box so there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever and buying domains is simple. You'll get all the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash MU for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash MU, offer code MU. You mentioned something a moment ago that uh, perked my ears up because I remember you were speaking about this briefly last time we spoke to you and it was the Lucia light device. And I think you started to share with us, I think it might have even been after the interview we had with you last time, uh, but you had a, a strange experience which you went into more detail in this book about what occurred to you after using the Lucia light device. And I think this might lead us into the metatonin subject. C can you share what you went through? Yeah, it was... It was really curious. And again, um, people were asking me about this last night and I didn't really have time to expand on this. So if there's anybody that was involved at the Sync Pong event last night, this is really the, the interview you need to listen to, I suppose. Um, it was around about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. Um, uh, I was invited down to um, Switzerland by a mutual friend called Evelyn Alassa Valerano, who is quite a famous near-death researcher. And she lives in Geneva. And she contacted me because she said, there is an old friend of mine, a consultant psychologist by the name of Dr. Engelbert Winkler, who's a huge fan of your work. He's read all your books and he had a near-death experience when he was a child. And he finds your work the most powerful of the writers on near-death experiences. And he would love to meet you. And he said, but she said, but on top of that, he wants to bring along with him a guy called Dr. Dirk Prokol who is a consultant neurologist, and they particularly want to bring along with them um, their new invention. They have collaborated to create a machine that can bring about altered states of consciousness. Now, 
I then met up with them and they explained to me the reasoning behind this machine was a simple one. Um, when uh, Engelbert works with uh, damaged children, and as you know, in, in, in Austria, particularly in the Austrian Tyrol where they live, it's very mountainous. So even in the summer months, direct sunlight, because the sun sets behind the mountains, um, the children react differently in pure sunlight and pure light rather than in artificial light. So they wanted a way of creating and duplicating what natural light would be like, natural sunlight. That was their first thing. But they then realized that by using this particular form of natural light and by using certain stroboscopic effects, they were able to elicit semi-hypnotic states, both in children and in adults. And they then realized that they could design a machine from the bottom up using their knowledge of neurology and their knowledge of how the brain works to create a device that could, could really create something really quite powerful. So they wheel this machine in. And if any of the listeners remember the original Gene Barry movie from the 1950s, the original War of the Worlds movie, the, um, the actual flying saucers in that movie had this kind of contraption coming out of the top of them with this kind of eye that looked down at people and had a death ray on it. This is what Lucia looked like. So they wheeled this thing in and I'm going, oh my God, this is something from my childhood. This is creepy. And again, if anybody's interested, if you just put Anthony Peake, Lucid Light Device, it's, it's up on YouTube because they filmed it. They filmed me using this device for the first time. So it's on YouTube. You can have a look at it. So I sit down in front of this thing and they switch it on. They say, close your eyes and switch it on. So I close my eyes and they switch it on and it's just flickering white light. And they gave me the strongest dose they could because it's all programmed. There are different levels that they can use and different sequences of light. And I'm sitting there and after about three or four minutes, nothing has happened. And I'm thinking, oh dear, this is going to be so embarrassing. I'm going to have to pretend something happened because these guys are so keen to convince me this is wonderful. And then bow, it happened. And what happened, it's still extraordinary. Um, from my left visual field came a blue, as if somebody had thrown blue paint over my visual field. And then from the other side came red paint, redness. And then they started to spin in the middle. And I was being drawn into the classic near-death experience tunnel of blue and red shimmering light. And then it started pulsating um, like a kaleidoscope. There were colors and lights and there were things flashing on and off. And it was just absolutely extraordinary. I then, they then say, I then say, so you've changed the colors of the light then? And they said, no, it's still white light. And I said, how can that be? I'm seeing colors myriads of colors. What? And I, he said, you can open your eyes slightly. And it was just pure white light and a flashing light. That was, that was all that was, it was doing it. So I close my eyes again, and I'm back in this kaleidoscopic magic world. And then I can see in my deep periphery vision on my right-hand side, all I could consider is like a scotoma. I suffer from classic migraine. And when I know I'm getting a classic migraine, my visual system breaks up and I get kind of fizzy, what's called castellations. They're called scotomas. They break down your visual field. And anybody who gets classic migraine will know this. It's the migraine aura. Okay. Fascinated me for a long time. And I write about this quite a lot, but this is an aside. But it was like a scotoma. And I said, there's something in my extreme left visual field. I want to look at it, but I can't. I'm not allowed to look away from the light. And they said, no, you can, because the brain has now encoded this. So look at what you can see. 
And I turned round and even to this day, I cannot even comprehend what I saw. I was floating around about 30 miles above the surface of a planet. <laughs> I was looking down. I could see the curvature of the planet. I could see cloudscapes way below me. And then there were blue line, a blue checkerboard pattern of lights going off to the, the curvature of the horizon. And they were flickering on and off. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? And again, somebody's done a video of this, of me explaining this experience. And they actually have a video of somebody gripping the chair with their hands, because that's what I did. I was so terrified. I gripped the chair because I thought I was going to fall off it. <laughs> and being the brave person I am, I said, for God's sake, switch it off. <laughs> and they switched off and it all went like that. It was gone disappeared. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell was that? Now, as a very quick aside here, I'll continue with the story, but I subsequently contacted um, Robert Bruce, the Australian out-of-body experience oh, yeah. that you may or may not know of experienced. Yep. I did an event in Australia with Robert in Melbourne about four years ago. Robert writes about out-of-body experiences. And when I described this to Robert a few months later, he said, get hold of my book, on out-of-body experiences. And he said, look at the back. And I did. And he said, is that what you saw? And I said, yes. And he said, you, you, saw, the, you saw the astral plane. I said, but it wasn't a plane. It was a curvature. And he said, yes, but. And even in this picture, he has the blue lights. I then subsequently discovered that Carlos Castaneda, in his books, we know that there's questions about Carlos Castaneda's veracity, but some of the things he described, he called them the lights of the world. And this is what I was seeing. I was seeing the lights of the world. I was seeing archetypes. So anyway, I come to and I'm chatting with Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, who'd come over, who was one of the world's leading experts in deja vu, who'd come down from Bern for, to meet, meet up with me and things. And as I'm talking to the guys, something really strange started to happen. I started to feel the weirdest vibration manifesting itself in the center of my forehead and moving back to the center of my brain. And it was as if something electric was pressing the centre of my forehead and pushing me back. You described it as, as something stirring underneath your skin. Correct. It was like there was this kind of little creature that was moving. It was almost like alien. You know, it was this kind of thing just about to <laughs> erupt into me. Yeah. And it was moving and I could feel it. But of course, I couldn't describe it to the others because I thought they'd think I was mad. So then we have the, 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 the dinner party afterwards. And all night, all the evening, I've got this bang in my head and I'm going, what the hell is happening here? And then I went to bed that night and the dreams I had, the, 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 the vibrations in my head were unbelievable, all centered in the center of my head. And I had dreams of snakes. I dreamt of snakes. Snakes were everywhere. Snakes were looking at me. Now, again, if anybody's read The Cosmic Serpent by James Narby, this is, a, this is a book about his experiences with ayahuasca. And Narby had exactly the same experiences as I had. He took ayahuasca and he had snakes talking to him. The snakes are DNA. It's DNA talking to us. Now, if you start looking back into the law of, of, of ayahuasca, you have the snakes all the time. The snakes are symbols. And I was seeing them. Now, when I got back and I started writing my next book, I continually had this fizz in the center of my forehead. I don't get it as much now, but to me, it was almost a Kundalini awakening. 
It was if, if the Kundalini spirit had actually written up along my Ida and my Pingala, which are called to the twin channels that the Kundalini energy runs up and it fires to the top of the head and then explodes in the top of the head. What I felt was, do you know, when you look at the symbol of the Asclepion, um, the, the staff of Osiris, if you look at that symbol, you see a, a, a stick coming up, then you see a circle and two wings either side. It's also the symbol of doctors, okay? That is what I experienced. The stick is the spine, the two wings are the hemispheres of the brain, and the circle in the middle is the pineal gland. And I believe my pineal gland was opened that moment by Lucia. And suddenly my whole motivation of what I was going to write, what I was going to come forward, suddenly was focused. I knew what I was going to do. I knew that I was driven. And this is what drives me now. And it still drives me. It's an amazing story. It's funny you're describing this movement under the skin, this feeling of the muscles piling up. That's often you know associated with the third eye opening. And this kind of leads into this discussion on the nature of the pineal gland and how it's related to witnessing or accessing the pleroma. Yeah, exactly. It's, there were two or three things that um, my subsequent research very much intrigued me. The first one is something called Kikara Mudra. It's a technique that is used by um, people in India and people who in the West do deep meditation. And what it is, it's a way of training yourself to flick your tongue right back to the back of your throat. Oh, yes, I have heard of this. Okay. And when you do this, you get a very acidic taste. And what the taste is, is called the, 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 the nectar of transcendence, the ambrosia, amrit. Okay. And this metallic taste supposedly then takes you into altered states of consciousness. Now, this intrigued me. So together with some research that another guy called Beach Barrett in, in, in America have been doing, there's some quite interesting things anatomically taking place here. At the 49th day of gestation, when the baby is in the womb, when the embryo is in the womb, that is the point that the Buddhists believe the soul enters the body, okay? And the soul comes into the body. Yeah. But something very curious physiologically takes place at that, that time because the pineal gland and the pituitary gland are a single entity called the epiphysis. And that sits at the back of the throat, after the 49th day of gestation, the epiphysis slowly moves up from the back of the throat into the center of the brain as the child develops. When it gets to that point, the two split and the pituitary gland goes into one place and the pineal gland moves into the center of the brain. When it moves up, it leaves a, a cleft and this is called Rathke's pouch or Rathke's cleft. Now, posit the idea that the the pineal gland can synthesize from melatonin. Just to explain, melatonin is what the pineal gland usually exists for, what they believe it exists for. And melatonin is the substance that makes you go to sleep. This is why when you take a long flight on an aircraft, you take melatonin tablets. And it's stimulated by darkness. So when darkness starts to appear, the pineal gland realizes it's going dark. And it's fascinating how the pineal gland does this because the pineal gland is an ossified eye. 
So when people talk about the third eye, they are not exaggerating. The pineal gland has within it, it has a lot of the, of the things of an ossified eye. In fact, there's in fact, there are animals such as the Chitura, which is a lizard off one of the islands of New Zealand. Its third eye and its pineal gland is an eye in the center of its forehead, and it works as an eye. Okay? So it's light sensitive. And inside it, it has small crystals called pineal sand. Okay? Now, when the, the optic nerve runs directly below the pineal gland, so the pineal gland is aware of when the optic nerve is active suggesting that there's external light. When the, pineal, when the pineal gland senses that the optic nerve is less active, it knows it's going dark. When it knows it's going dark, it starts to produce and synthesize melatonin, which is then released into the body, which makes you go to sleep. Now, there's a very important point I'm going to make after this about this. So the pineal gland sends you to sleep, well, melatonin sends you to sleep. But melatonin is very, very similar. It is an amine core. It, its actual molecular structure is profoundly similar to another substance, dimethyltryptamine. Huh. And it is possible to synthesize in very small chemical changes, melatonin to dimethyltryptamine. Beach Barrett calls endogenously, that is internally generated, dimethyltryptamine. He calls it metatonin. So the idea is we can create this. Now, if this is the case, this would explain quite a few mysteries that modern neurologists find strange. Like there is something called the trace amine associated receptors in the brain. These are receptor sites for neurochemicals called neurotransmitters. Each one is designed to work with one particular neuro neurochemical or neurotransmitter. The TARS don't make any sense. They didn't know what they reacted to. They do now. They actually react with dimethyltryptamine. Oh, wow. So, so we now know that dimethyltryptamine in potentiality is a neurotransmitter, which means it has evolved in the brain. The big question was, okay, guys, but you've never found DMT inside the human brain. It's found in the spinal fluid. It's found in the liver. It's found in the stomach. It's never been found in the brain of a live animal. It has in the, the end of 2017, a research group led by a young lady called Jimo Borgigian at the University of Michigan was researching the, the brains of live rats. They found two things. The first one they found that if a rat dies, the rat is dead. And for about 10 or 20 seconds afterwards, there is huge neuronal activity. That's the near-death experience, by the way. Okay, so they found that they had correlates of the near-death experience. But more importantly, in one of the dead rats, they opened up the pineal gland, and guess what they found? DMT. Hmm. DMT was inside the brain and the pineal gland of a live rat. This proves that DMT does exist within the mammalian brain. The question is why it was there. I think it was there because the pineal gland had already synthesized it. Because, of course, the thing with DMT is it rapidly deteriorates into other things. So you couldn't really just open a brain and find it because it would it, you might not find it. Now, coming back then to the egregores and shamanic tra training, remember I mentioned about this, this, this tribe of Indian, uh, of, of um, Native Americans in Colombia, they take very young children who show shamanic, to, uh, shamanic possibilities and they place them in caves in darkness for the first seven or eight, nine years of their lives. The reason they do that is to facilitate their shamanic abilities. 
I think they are unaware of why they're really doing it. They're really doing it because they're making their pineal gland continually process melatonin and metatonin and endogenous DMT to allow them to become shamans. And I'd love to do tests because I think we'll find this is what's going on here. And this is why egregorials are always associated with caves. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's a connection. For instance, there's a whole section on my book about people seeing the Blessed Virgin Mary in various places around the world. They are nearly always associated with caves. Bernadette, it was a cave that she saw, a grotto. The children at Fatima, it was a cave that they saw the entity. And all these places were all in caves that had a reputation previously before the visitations of the religious egregores took place of entities being described there. If you look at the, 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 the stories which we haven't even touched upon, the stories of the jinn, the jinn manifest in caves. Not only this, but the jinn are created out of something called smokeless fire. Smokeless fire is another word for plasma. These creatures use plasma as one of the tools of manifesting within this reality. They are plasma-based beings. Again, Paulino. Paulino is an ex-Roman Catholic priest who now researches these things. In his books, he talks about the parasitics and the entities, and he links them directly with a plasma life form. Mm. So I think, and we can know that plasma is very strange. Plasma is not a liquid. It's not a solid. It's something, it's an intermediate thing that's found around stars and everything else. And I think we'll find plasma is one of the constituents of black holes. And I think that black holes, as we know, are one of the, the things that we are discovering that the, um, the holographic nature of reality is to do with research on black holes and people like Stephen Hawking and Hawking radiation and people like Juan Maldacana and um, Jacob Beckenstein and Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in, in, in Ontario. These are all guys that are doing work. So my argument here is all the dots are there. And I think I'm the only person on the planet putting this together because <laughs> there isn't anybody else that's taking the breadth and depth of inquiry that I'm doing. And there isn't anybody. I'm not being vain here, but I am the only person doing this. And I'm shouting and bouncing up and down going to people, please listen to what I'm saying. You're certainly the only uh, investigator of this stuff that has all the gee whiz moments that we love on this show but then goes into the scientific basis for it and really digs into it. Like the the whole kind of end half of your book, the last couple of chapters, you know, because <laughs> it, was, it, late, it was late last night when Aaron and I were reading them because we were prepping for the interview and we got to the end of the day and we were just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how are we going to abs absorb this? That's what people do. I, I always want to have people in, when they're reading my books, I very much, um, my mentor was Colin Wilson. Um, the, the British I writer. I love his work, yes. And I always loved Colin Wilson because on every page there was a gee whiz moment yeah. where yes. you'd go, wow, I didn't know that. And I try to do that. I try to shake my readers and I want my readers to go, wow. I want my readers to really love my books. I try to take my, my writing style is very much personal. I write to my reader and I, as if I'm holding by the hand. And in one of the descriptions of one of my books, I say, it's like I'm walking you through a wood and a trail. And I will take you off the trail occasionally and say, look at this, that's really interesting. And look at that. But I will always drag you back to the trail. And I will always say to you, but make up your own mind. 
Don't take my word for it. Read the documents I've read. And I always have an extended bibliography. I don't want people to say to me, you're a guru, you're somebody magic, because I'm not. I'm an ordinary working class guy from Liverpool. I'm nothing special. But the ideas are... I think you use the right word there, Anthony, when you say you're dragging people back to the past. You're right, because people listening to this who probably haven't heard you before, if they're not familiar with your work, it is so incredibly mind-blowing, as it is fascinating. And I think after you sit back for a moment and just just take a look at your ideas and the supporting evidence behind them, it really does just completely emphasize, as Ben has said, the the gee whiz. It's not just the gee whiz of the encounters, it's the gee whiz of the nature of reality. But keeping that in mind, I want to throw a little bit of a curveball towards you just for the, the end of this interview. And that's, we've described the possibility that we live in a simulation. We've described the possibility of these independent entities existing outside of this reality. But What's the ultimate conclusion for human beings? Can we get out of the simulation? Is that what we're supposed to do? Or are we just simply programs that are sitting in here that will be turned off one day? What's the end? This is something we have discussed a great deal with my groups. And it's and it's something that has um, excited and intrigued me ever since I embarked upon this fascinating journey of the last couple of decades in terms of my life. And I believe that we are all part of a movement that is going to enlighten people into realizing that nature is far more complex, far more fascinating and far more interesting than we've ever believed. But at the same token, that in some way it is artificial. And the question is, if entities within a simulation become aware of the fact that they are within a simulation, does that then smash the simulation? Does the simulation need us collectively to believe the simulation is here? Is the simulation itself a collective egregore that we are creating as we go along? Now, again, it was a point I made at the talk last night, and it's a point I don't think I've ever made in any of my written books, but it's something I'm, I'm going to follow up on in my next book, is that I'm continually intrigued as to how it is that when subatomic particles are discovered, it seems that we create our own science by thinking about it. That might sound strange, but I'll give an example of this. In 19, 1901, when Max Planck came up with his paper trying to describe the quantum nature of energy, he was trying to explain certain anomalies that had been discovered. In fact, funnily enough, Max Planck, when he was doing this, was trying to do something quite prosaic. He was trying to actually design a more efficient light bulb, which is quite strange. Again, you know, you tend to think that he was doing something incredibly esoteric and really interesting, but he, he, they were trying to, the Germans were trying to beat the English and the Americans at better light bulbs. Um, but he came to the conclusion that light, light and energy came in quanta in little packets. But he didn't do this through scientific research. He didn't through, do it through experimentation. In his autobiography, he said he did it in an act of desperation because nothing else fitted. And he literally, and this is even weirder, he came up with something called the Planck number. The, the, uh, it's it's, it's, it's uh, a constant that he just created because it made some of his calculations work. He just created it. He didn't think about it. He just created it. That 
number now occurs all the time within the more we delve into the nature of reality, the more the Planck constant is discovered. But it was made up. But it's now an integral part of how the universe works. Later then, you had the situation when there was the proliferation of the particle zoo, when they started discovering more and more particles. It got to the point where it became a joke. And there was a guy called uh, Professor Rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, who when they were trying to discover what they thought was a, a, a particle that would fill, fulfill a thing called a muon, when they discovered it, they discovered it because they thought about it and then it appeared. Rabbi turned around and said, as if they'd ordered a takeaway meal, who ordered that? <laughs> you know, the idea that they think about it and it's there. And this, to me, is absolute evidence that this is a simulation and we're creating it. But the biggest piece of evidence for the fact that this is a simulation and the biggest clue you see every time you see a total eclipse of the sun. Now, if you've never heard of this, this is mind-blowing. What are the statistical chances of the sun, the moon, being exactly one eight hundredth the distance from the sun and the moon being one eight hundredth difference in size relative to being viewed from the earth? Almost impossible. Because when a total eclipse takes place, the sun is completely and utterly occluded by the moon. There are no other structures in the known universe that has that kind of scenario. All the other satellites of all the other planets are much smaller. Our moon is exactly programmed to obscure the sun in its entirety. I think that's a massive clue. I do not believe that's coincidence. I think that has been placed there to say, hey, guys, look, we'll give you a clue and you'll see it regularly, but you won't twig. I may be wrong, and, and astronomers may turn around and say to me, no, 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 you're just, it's ridiculous. Well, do the math, do the statistics of what are the chances of that happening, and tell me any other celestial body within our solar system or any other solar system that has that configuration. You're totally right. It is one of the most obvious mysteries. For me, it, it leads to design. It's obviously design. And this is a one, I'm, I've been a great believer in something called the cosmic anthropic principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, there's been various books written from um, uh, the Goldilocks Enigma, which is a fascinating book on it, together with um, the original guys. There were three of them, uh, John Barrow, I think, um, and there were two other guys wrote a book on the cosmic anthropic principle. And this, they give how many things took place to prove that this universe was hardwired for the evolution of sentient beings. From the first moment of the Big Bang, the universe was a miracle from the minute that happened. The fact that there was a slight unbalance between matter and antimatter was crucial. The fact that the, 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 the certain mathematical differences between the subatomic particles, if they'd been one ten thousandth different, the universe would not have started the way it is. Yes. All of these things coincided. Now, people will argue, you know, it's just the way it is. Uh, uh, um, Douglas Adams spoofed this in one of his books when there's a puddle of water 
lying there. And the puddle of water is thinking, isn't it amazing that I'm exactly the shape of this hole that I'm lying within? Isn't it just, doesn't it prove that the, the universe has been created for me? And then the sun comes out and it evaporates. And that's the joke, you know, the idea. It wasn't. But that is different. And it's different for one reason. If we believe this is the only universe that's ever been, it got it right first time. And it got right it right first time, time and time and time again. Even a simple thing, water. Water is the only liquid that freezes from the top downwards. Every other liquid does it the opposite. If water was like a normal liquid and freeze from the bottom upwards, it would be permanently frozen. Even on planet Earth, there would be no real free water, right. not enough water for life to evolve. Things like that. And if you go through this and you read like the Goldilocks enigma, you realize that there is there's almost a teleological imperative for conscious observing beings to evolve in order to bring the universe into existence in the past. Now, you'll turn around to me and say, what? How could an observing person now bring the universe into observation in the past? Check up something called um, gravitational lensing. And um, I think it was one of the authors, <laughs> my mind has gone blank and I can't remember his name now. He was one of the world's top quantum physicists. Now you're giving us and homework. He, <laughs> pardon? Now you're giving us homework. <laughs> I know. But look this up. I'll send you the link. Okay. Because he actually shows by using a version of the twin slit experiment, how you can, by an act of observation, bring into existence a quasar that existed 10 billion years ago. What? And it's really true. And again, I'll post this again on, on I'll post it on Facebook for you and I will post it on my Instagram feed about this. And I'll do this after I finish this conversation. He proves that you, we bring the past into existence. Okay. If this is the case, and of course, time is relative, you know, from my book, The Labyrinth of Time, that time itself is a very peculiar concept. So clearly, there seems to be an element of design. Now, this does not mean that I'm believing that there is, there is a God, but I think collect, it, the consci consciousness itself, the collection of all consciousnesses, is in, in a form, a sentience. And it's somebody once, well, the wonderful word, it said, the consciousness is the way in which the universe is trying to become aware of itself that the universe itself is becoming aware through us and other sentient beings. And it's a process. And there is a teleological reason. There is an end purpose. And it's the evolution of consciousness. And I'm very excited about this idea. This is not religious, but it's spiritual. But it's using science to define a spiritual belief system. We are all emanations of Brahman. It is incredible. It, I get very excited about it, as you may have noticed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Anthony, so much. It's always fascinating to talk to you. Uh, the book's available now, and we can't wait to have you back in the future. Well, Aaron and Ben, thank you very much. Always, I always thoroughly enjoy this, these discussions because you really get what I'm at. So you, you ask the questions many interview, other interviewers don't do. You actually dig a lot deeper, and you do invest time in reading the book and my books and that is so profoundly important um, so thank you very much for that and thank you for allowing me on your show
Huge thanks again to Anthony for appearing on the show. The book is The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. It's available now, and we'll link to it in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Just look for season 20... What are we up to now? 2303. 2303. (laughs) You can also find him at anthonypeak.com, and he has some upcoming events. On the 1st of April, he's going to be speaking at Marina Fountain in uh, St. Leonard's in East Sussex, and he's also going to be at Contact in the Desert in May in oh, California. Fantastic. So if you're looking at, if you're on the edge of getting tickets to Contact in the Desert this year, uh, there's another uh, excellent speaker to add to the, the good reasons to go. Uh, that's on the 29th of May to the 1st of June. But all of this is at anthonypeak.com. Just look in the forthcoming events section. And uh, of course, we'll link to all these previous books in the show notes as well. Yeah, always a pleasure to, to speak to Anthony. And yeah, you just get that feeling of being blasted with information. We've <laughs> been trying good. to divulge it over the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, he's a fascinating guy and I really enjoy his theories. I don't necessarily agree with, with everything he says, but I think the great thing about Anthony is that he does present you with this wealth of information that you find yourself going through the book going, oh, that's fascinating. But not only is that fascinating, I want to read up more about that. And then he supplies links. Like, as he says, you know, he's got a huge index or a huge bibliography at the back of his books. So if you find a particular theory that you like, you can go and find out more about it. It leads you on your own journey. And I think that's something that Anthony really does bring to this community. And there is just so many little stories and anecdotes that make it fun to read. Oh, yes. So by the time you get to the heavy science (laughs) stuff towards the end, and the last chapter is just full on... Uh, you know, the the latest in cutting-edge science. but you and I were talking about this last night, and I think it's good that he includes that science because there's a lot of people out there that haven't been exposed to this paranormal world and don't even question the unusual nature of our reality. But I think to make it more palatable to a lot of people is you have to add the science to it. People, I think, are more readily able to rely on science than they certainly are to rely on anecdotal reports of people encountering you know, little green men. So to have that science in there, even though it is difficult sometimes to really get your head around, it's far more accessible to a lot of people bringing them into this world of paranormal experiences. Well, speaking about experiences, he just made me want to try that Lucia light device again. I'm a bit apprehensive about that. I know what you're saying, because normally whenever you talk about us trying these devices, it's me trying these devices. <laughs> yes, and I is. have something fired into my skull. <laughs> which causes an out-of-body experience or attaches me to a gin or I bring some alien home. It just never goes well. Look, if you're willing to do the Korean Jungshim energy massage, <laughs> then you're willing to blast light into your third eye. Well, no, the difference is, the difference is, and this was before we did the interview, we were just chatting with Anthony. He mentioned someone that was, and we may have them on the show later on, but he was mentioning someone who works with five, I think it was five MEO DMT. Yeah. So it's a different derivative of, of, of DMT. But he was saying that uh, this person has trouble reintegrating their understanding or their, what was it, walking around in today's reality. Like they saw something that was just so significantly different. Yeah, they couldn't integrate their experience into their everyday living reality. So it's affecting his life. It's affecting his work. And I don't know. in a good way. No, I don't want to sit in front of a machine that blasts a laser (laughs) into my skull and then I can't come back. I'll link to it in the show notes. They have, I don't want to say practitioners, but people that own the machine. providers. And they sell you, you know, an hour's usage of it for, I don't know, it's $50 or something. And people have written reviews and most of them at least describe a very uh, long-lasting feeling of well-being. Really? Uh, pretty much everyone describes seeing strange colours and weird effects going on. See, I get the strange colours and weird effects because you're having some frequency of light fired at you and that could just be a, a, you know, a physiological response. But the more crazy stories I hear of out-of-body experiences fascinate me. 
I don't know whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, though. Well, Anthony's experience of looking down and seeing another planet and nearly falling out of his chair, that's what happened to me the first time I tried virtual reality and I loaded up one of those universe simulations and I was flying over Jupiter. And I have that feeling of vertigo, like you're actually going to fall out yeah. and fall down to the planet's surface. The way he described that sound like sounded like VR, but obviously that's an extreme example of what that device could do to you. But I still want to try it. If you look it up, there's there's people that have them all over the world. So there's... A couple in Brisbane, which is only an hour away from us. So we could go check one out. I mean, Again, you could we, go check yeah, one out. Yeah, exactly. There. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to go and do that. And deal. We should put you on it because I don't, I and mean, I obviously go under hypnosis really well, but you don't. But I wonder if something like this, which is more mechanical, might actually induce you to go under. Maybe. The other thing I have to link to you is Anthony's description of the, what was it? It was the gravitational lensing effect. He made a statement in, in the interview about how there's, it's been proven that we can influence the past. Our observation can create a, an event that occurred in the past. Yeah, what did he say? We could bring a, a quasar or a pulsar or something it into was, effect? It was some wild claim and he promised that he would send us the information. Now, it's too late for us to make sense of it because we've just kind of found it today. It's on his Facebook page, but I'll link to it in the show notes. Essentially, just from a quick read through, it's almost like the double slit experiment, but on a galactic scale. Interesting. So it's something has to be observed to allow it to bring it into our reality. Yeah, but okay. in terms of a galaxy being observed by a human being here. His ideas are great. His ideas are great. And this idea of having to observe the universe for it to exist uh, just continues to blow my mind. And in the Plus Extension coming up, we're going to go into that. We're going to be talking about some stories of people that have had very strange experiences in that they've observed something, but it only exists because they thought about it first. Mm. It's like a thought form that comes into a reality, but then it's witnessed by other people. I love all the egregorial stuff. I love that this idea, because we love talking about tulpas on the show, and this idea that there is an entity that comes together from a, a group effort at focusing thought. Or an individual and whether as well. it's conscious or not, I mean, usually it's not a conscious thing that happens. It just naturally occurs. These entities that emerge from the focused thought of many individuals, that's essentially an egregore. We covered it in detail when I did Mark Stavish's book on the show, and, you know, he was linking it to political movements and culture. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, but when Anthony ends up going into this idea of um, essentially the universe as a, as a God experiencing itself, you know, that kind of stuff, I find it hard, not hard to follow, but hard to, to go along with that kind of thinking. The idea that uh, if, if there is some kind of design in the universe, it comes about because of some kind of collective consciousness, I feel like that takes agency away from the creation. Because if you and I are contributing to some, uh, you know, universal creative mechanism... So you and I as a group are creating the reality that we live in. But we have no... We're not doing that consciously. There's no conscious attention on that. that then so you that talk kind about of the take, collective unconscious. Yeah, I, I kind of hate this idea of the collective <laughs> unconscious. It really annoys me because it's unconscious... There's no thought involved. There's no intention. There's no will behind it. It's unconscious. When you're unconscious, you're not, there's no will at all. Mm -hmm. So how can the collective unconscious have any effect at all? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. Where I have maybe a little bit of difficulty understanding and processing it, and uh, you know, I need to give it more thought, but the idea that, that we are creating our own reality, I think, well, it's the chicken and the egg. Where did it start? It, had to, it has to have 
an initiator. And of course, you know, from some spiritual aspects, people would say, well, no, it's always just being. It's always just being and it's always, it's everything and it's nothing. But I don't know. I feel like if it's something that we have created amongst ourselves, there has to be a beginning. And there also has to be an end. Yeah, sometimes I feel like the the research that Anthony's doing, it's it's leading to a universal truth. It's leading to something real. And he's digging up all these truths and, and you know ways that the universe functions uh, that are constant truths. Mm. Uh, but I feel like sometimes that uh, that's applied to a macro scale when it doesn't, it shouldn't necessarily be. Like if human beings have the ability to create something out of their thought and intention, that doesn't necessarily mean everything is created out of human beings' thought and attention. I think when you start to talk on these very large macro scales, you know, talking about gravitational lensing and, you know, galaxies being created, um, it gets a little bit far for me to to follow because I believe there's a limit to the ability of human beings to create. And when you're talking about huge macro systems like the cosmos, to put a, a human being in the same category as that, to me is a little bit ludicrous. Even if you call it some kind of collective, even if you include all the entities that are within that universe, still seems a little bit far. Yeah. Like you say, like you're saying, the chicken and the egg. There has to be a consciousness that exists outside of it. Well, there could be layers as well. I mean, we sent, we could be creating this reality, but there has to be another consciousness above that somehow that's creating that. And you know, I, I see what you're saying about this idea about human potential, but I think a human potential is actually unlimited. I think we do have the capacity to create potentially anything. But where all of this falls down for me. Is I mean, I know that human beings are capable of, of dreadful, horrible acts, but after doing this show for so long and talking about you know the stories that we have, overall what I have seen is that we are dealing with a negative entity of some kind that is uh, interested in humanity. When you're talking about non-human intelligences. Yes. It's so, well, yeah, most it's of what I mean is it's independent of us. I cannot believe, despite the horrible acts that humans are capable of, I cannot believe that we would create this evil. Yeah, I mean, I tried, I, I don't know how the edit came out because it's kind of a blur in my mind at the moment, but I did repeat this question a bunch of times to try and get to the bottom of it. I think I edited it out the other two times I tried to get Anthony to answer this question of the you know, status of these entities in terms of their existence outside of human consciousness. Because it seems to me that the arguments being made are that these entities, I mean, calling them egregorial essentially states that they're created by human consciousness. I think they're dependent on human consciousness. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I really wanted a clear answer of if they can exist outside of any influence of human consciousness at all. I don't think there is a clear answer. And I don't think that even Anthony, with I mean, his great theories, I don't even think he would be able to um, yeah. say yes or no. Do they have any agency outside of human attention and consciousness? Can they exist independent of it? I, I still want that to be answered. I don't, I don't know. You know what? I it, would say yes. I mean, my initial, yes too. my initial feeling is absolutely. Because again, I think there's a limit to the ability of human consciousness. I don't think human consciousness is that incredible. I think we just disagree. We're human beings. We have we have divine nature and abilities, but we're just human beings also. And yeah. the reason and we are limited for a reason. We're in this limited dimension for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're coming from maybe more of a a Buddhist perspective of that um, you know, where 
we're stuck in this cycle of death and rebirth and we're here at this particular we're level. We're not gods. No, we're not gods. And in fact, that's something that we were only talking about earlier this week on The Plus Show when we were talking about uh, Theodore Illions, which may or may not have been a real story. I'm believing <laughs> it to think it's probably a real story. Real story. <laughs> but regardless, uh, what, he did make some valid points and that was that there are some people amongst humanity that utilize these dark forces and utilize magic practices and you know, uh, basically utilize the supernatural to try and achieve this godhood. And in doing so, we're not gods. And so when you wield that kind of power, we'll never be able to achieve it. But also, it's almost like there's some type of uh, restraints that are put in place to prevent us from ever getting there. So I can see what you're saying about the restraints of human beings. I think human beings have unlimited potential, and this is why these beings interact with us. Well, if, if think of it this way. If we had unlimited potential, if, if our consciousness was that powerful, if I had a dream about a volcano expl- erupting, yeah. half the world would be destroyed. If, if human beings really had that ability, we would destroy ourselves. If our consciousness could just suddenly create no, these things. Perhaps it's regulated. Perhaps it has to have a certain number of people do it. I mean, because we know that, you know, for example, there are people that have dreams, like precognitive dreams. So they're picking up on something that's happening. So you're talking about a volcano erupting. There are people that have dreams about that. But is it that the people dreaming about that beforehand are actually creating that event to I don't take think place? So. No, I don't think so. Why not? Because I think it's more likely that they're picking up on some precognitive, it's some precognitive ability. Yeah, but that could just simply be that the reality is forming around their thought patterns. And then if enough people have that. It's fine to think that. I just don't think that's true. I don't don't think human beings... See, the problem with that is then you're starting to go down this area of unconscious creation again. Which is tulpas. Yeah. No, well, no, tulpas aren't unconscious because you're actively thinking about it. You're actively... It's your thought. Like you're, you're controlling your thoughts. Yeah, but there are other elements of it being unconscious where people worry about something. It's in the back of their minds and then all of a sudden it will appear. Yeah, so but that's, that's still their thinking. Like, you still control your own thinking. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, a bunch of people just create a volcano, <laughs> it's just... I, again, I just feel like there's there's limits to the abilities of, of human beings. And um, I think there's there's something missing from the picture. There's oh, some, of course There's there something is. missing from this is. picture. And I think for me, it's quite obvious. It's that there's higher beings. Because Anthony's talking about design at the end of that interview. He's talking about the, the moon creating an eclipse with the sun and how precise it is. The, the odds of it are absolutely incredible. Um, you know, obviously it, it points towards some kind of design. And when you're talking about questions of design, I find, I find it a little bit, it just puts, it just puts me off that there's this idea that somehow that design comes from human beings, some kind of collective function of human beings. The obvious answer is that there's something higher that has abilities that far outstrip Mm -hmm. anything any human being can ever do. No, I get that, right? But then we come back to what Anthony was describing towards the beginning of the interview and towards the beginning of his book, is that we're in a simulation and a higher being could simply be some, you know, tertiary student in another reality that has created the simulation who has far more powers than us. Well, the problem, the simulation terminology bothers me as well because it takes away the reality of it. Like if you're saying it's sim- a simulation, the word itself indicates that it's not... Well, it's a simulated it, it's reality. It's not real. Okay, so um, but maybe that, artificial reality is the better. Even artificial. It's like our dimension is real. We're experiencing it. It's not a simulation. Well, we think we are. We're in it. But you were just talking about VR before. 
I mean, even though you knew, but you almost fell out of your chair because you fooled your brain for even a moment mm. to believe that you were there. You're saying that we're in this real... Yeah, it's real to us, but it's real because if we're in a simulation, the simulation is telling us it's real. Well, I'm not saying that there's not an existence, there's not, you know, reality beyond what we experience. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm not saying that either, but what I'm saying, you're talking about there being um, like a higher entity. For the lack of a better word, a god. If you want to use the, the terminology simulation, it's a simulation of what? What's it simulating? If you're suggesting that it's simulating something... It's simulating life. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it just life? Why isn't it just what we're experiencing, the reality? <laughs> like, see yeah. what I'm saying? I just, no. I just don't like the terminology. No, I see what you're saying. but I, mean, I, I find it more effective to call it a dimension. It's a particular dimension of experience that we are, yeah, that we're but, in. But it, it may be, but I think you're making it more um, perhaps, religious isn't the right word, but it's making it that it is a there's a dogma perhaps to it. Whereas what I'm saying is that there may not actually be, maybe actually where where you might be coming from, I think, is you might be describing some benevolent being that's above us that has created us and is allowing us to go through these experiences because we're um, trying to not ascend, but trying to improve our, I guess, our virtue or the, the, the soul. We're trying to improve our soul to be better. But what I'm saying is take that all away, make it very clinical and what potentially this could be, that, of course, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that couldn't be happening. But what I'm also saying is that there is a possibility that someone or some civilization has just become so advanced that they have you know, artificial, general artificial intelligence and they have the computing capabilities to create a reality where you've got 9 billion independent programs running mm. that think that they're all in a reality because the computer is telling us we're in a reality. So why would you call that a simulation? Because it's a simulation, perhaps, of the other reality. Why would you need to simulate another reality? Oh, think of course you would. Think about it. Once our science in this reality has enough computing power, you don't think people at Oxford and Cambridge are going to be running simulations to see how a society would go? And what you would do is, because we run simulations right now for a whole range of things, yep. how much pressure a bridge can take, nuclear explosions. Okay. We run those simulations. So what? think about it. You could get a whole bunch of scientists that would then run a simulation of a society and then they would go, well, let's just tweak some of the parameters and make it that this natural disaster happens or uh, this virus pops up. Sure. You know, and then see how it responds and then use it for modelling yeah. to help their reality. Okay, so I, I guess you're right in arguing that my view is dogmatic because my... I'm what, not saying it's bad though. So no, well, that's fine because what bothers me about what you're describing is precisely the word clinical, that it is clinical. Maybe that's getting closer to what, why I you know, find it a bit repulsive. Well, you know what it also means? It Let means- me finish. It's because when you say it's that kind of clinical simulation, you, you're taking away human morality, you're taking away divinity, you're taking away you know, the, the incredible uh, goodness that's within, within human beings and within the world. You're taking away any kind of moral purpose. You're taking away purpose within human well, beings. It's even more than purpose. Um, and maybe it's, it's, I mean, they're synonymous words, but uh, what I was going to say, and because you, I think you're right, well, if it's clinical, if that's what it is, if it's just simply a modeling simulation, you know what it actually takes away? It takes away your meaning. Yeah. Your meaning. Like why everything, this is the thing, right? Everything we go through. And, and you know, this is the thing, like um, you know, I've been through some terrible things recently. You've had some terrible things happen in your life, Ben. But what you do is when you get through that, you go, you know what? That happened for a reason. I'm a better yeah. person. You know, I'm the person I am today because of what has happened to me. Yeah. And I feel like if there is reincarnation or if there is something on the other side, that 
because I've gone through these these tests and I've survived them and I haven't fallen down and I haven't treated people badly, that I'm going to somehow be rewarded for it. Whereas if it's just simply a simulation... Yeah, well, there's no spirituality. It's gone. And, and this is this is the and blind no spot. Point. This is the blind spot when you're trying to understand reality in the universe. When you look at any kind of religion or spiritual practice that is upright in history, they always talk about morality first. Mm, they talk yeah, about right. the human heart and morality. The structure of the universe and what's behind everything, that comes later. But the core of it, the foundation is morality. And when you start looking into things and you leave that out, it's such a huge blind spot that I feel like you're just digging into this endless corner. You'll never get the big picture unless you include that. Well, you know, that's the answer. You know what? And I, um, you know, I think I'm more of an agnostic kind of person, but I, you know, grew up in a way of that I was very much dedicated to science. And that's no change because I think that science is starting to, like what Anthony's work does, it provides us insight into the spiritual nature of our reality. But at the same time, I think that, you know, if we were to find out that, just think of the ramifications, if we were to find out that we actually are in a simulation, I think that would actually cause so much unrest. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe for an atheist, an atheist would go, ah, whatever, I'm proven right. But I think for a lot of other people that do have a spiritual belief or a religious belief, you know, or an agnostic belief in, in something beyond this reality, I think it would cause depression and the destruction of our society. I think the way that the term is applied these days is more of a, um, it's more of a modern way to say that the reality that we have is kind of an illusion. It's a, the physical reality mm, is yeah. just one aspect of existence and beyond it, there's much more. I think it's just applied in that fashion you know, despite the issues I have with the terminology. What? I don't think people actually think that we live in some kind of giant computer. No, but some do. I mean, even the, the person who proposed it, I've got it here in my notes, it was Dr. Nick Bostrom from, I don't know if it was Cambridge, but he was the one who published an article uh, suggesting that it's highly likely that we are all living in a computer simulation. So it's not that people are just thinking, oh, no, it's like, no, it's actually there are people out there that truly believe that we are in a computer simulation. And that in itself... You know, what bothers me about that as well is particularly with these topics because yeah we cover topics about you know people encountering entities and abductions and really dark stuff but we also cover some really fascinating stuff such as the near death experience you know and people going into light and having these you know profoundly good experiences of acceptance and of of love and you know even though love but I'm not saying it's like that but there is goodness <laughs> you see yes. you know and what's beyond that veil whereas if it just simply is a computer simulation it means that all of that is simulated as well, which means it all has no value. It means that, again, what's the point? What's the point of living here and going through the pain? Because it's, as human beings, we are naturally, and it's great, we are naturally averse to pain. So what's the point in going through all this if there isn't some type of meaning for it? And with a lack of meaning, that's when everything just grinds to a halt. Yeah, well, that's when you get to the, the big questions. And a lot of this comes from you know, Buddhist thinking is, existing in this dimension, being a human being, is suffering. Yes, But then absolutely. if that's a truth, then the question is why? Why do we suffer? What's the point of suffering in this dimension? And those questions are more interesting to me than uh, whether we live in some kind of simulation. It's to test you. It's to get you out of the cycle, the endless cycle of death and rebirth. Because I must say in the past, I thought reincarnation is such a great idea. As bad as things go... <laughs> you get to reincarnate. But no, as I was saying only earlier this week, you want to get off that roller coaster. You want to get off that cycle because whatever is beyond that, once you break out of this reality, we keep on getting thrown back into. I truly believe that it's something so much better than we can ever possibly imagine. 
this is something that Anthony says, you know, the, the nature of reality is so much weirder than we could ever comprehend. But I think it's also a lot better than we could ever comprehend. So the other thing we kept on coming back to is when we're talking about the non-human intelligences, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, they seem to be mostly untrustworthy. You know what I'm going to do? Keep that on your mind because I want to talk about that in the plus extension yeah. because we're going to go into that. We're going to go into the summoning of tulpa-like entities and what they can do to you. And we're going to go into the jinn and some experiences people have had with jinn that hang around in caves. And they seem to be, particularly the, the subspecies of jinn known as the red jinn, have a particular hatred for human beings and they are absolutely independent. So we're going to go into that in the plus extension coming up right after this. To get access to that, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. You get the big extensions we do every single Friday. And if you're a plus member, you get an exclusive show every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for plus. In addition to the extra shows, you also get a higher bitrate feed. Plus members get a higher quality audio version of the show. Plus members get ads removed as well. So it's a totally ad-free experience on plus. You also get discounts of digital products in our store. There's a discount code on your Plus dashboard. Uh, the features of our apps are unlocked as well if you're a Plus member. It's all there at mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus nine bucks a month. Help support your favorite show. And that's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Make sure you check out Anthony's website, anthonypeak.com. Uh, big thanks again to him for appearing on the show. Go and get your third eye blasted by the Lucia Light device. <laughs> <laughs> Convince Aaron to do it with me. Uh, that's a wrap for this free edition. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you.